If you ever really fought, really tried to overcome one of those things that Hebrews chapter 12 would describe as a besetting sin, or some translations have it, a sin that clings so closely. You've prayed, you've worked, and you think you've overcome it. Only to look up and you've fallen right back into it again. And it seems that it's even deeper, harder. Does that ring a bell with pretty much everyone? I thought about it as I began this morning, trying to name some examples of that. But the problem with that is, if, if I name two or three or four things by way of example, it would be very easy for someone who doesn't struggle with those two or three or four things to go, well, then this isn't a problem for me. But the fact of the matter is, again, if you think about Hebrews chapter 12, it doesn't say that this one or two or three besetting sins, because if we're honest, each one of us has something or has had something in our past that tempts us that we struggle with and we struggle to overcome. And maybe by the grace of God, we, we do or we think we have, but then we let our guard down for a moment and there we are again. Why does that happen? We're going to come back to that in a, in a few minutes. This sermon, I was actually telling Mary Carroll last night that this sermon actually began in my mind about five years ago, and I may not be able to tell that by the end product. I don't know, but it actually started about five years ago. I was staying in the back of an auditorium, not here. We weren't living here at the time, but I was staying in the back of an auditorium, just shaking hands and talking to people. And, and a young adult lady who I've, I've known for a long time, who knows her Bible very, very well, I said, to, you got a second? And I said, sure. And she said, have you got a moment to answer a Bible question? Well, of course I've got a second to answer a Bible question. Well, of course, absolutely. And she opened up her Bible to the text we read together a few moments ago from Luke chapter 11. I want you to have your Bible open there, by the way. But she opened her Bible to Luke chapter 11 and just pointed to that text in verses 24 to 26. And if I may paraphrase, she basically just said, what in the world is that talking about? This story about a spirit, that this demon that goes away and comes by, it's a weird story. And I had to confess to her that at that time I, I had not really ever studied that text deeply. I'd read it, I don't know how many times, in daily Bible readings and so on and so forth. Luckily, I had actually read it just in a few days or weeks before she asked me that question. So at least it was kind of the back of my mind. And, and I shared with her at that time what I, what I thought that text was talking about. And she thanked me for my time. And, and uh, I think I was correct in my assessment at that time. But ever since then, four or five years or so, this text has been fascinating to me. But we're calling our lesson this morning, Clean Your House. Because of something that's mentioned in that little short three-verse parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, about the person cleaning their house and setting it in order. And it may seem like a bizarre text for us to study as we think about the words of Jesus. And I'll explain why more about that in just a few moments. But what I want to do this morning is simply walk through this text with you to think about what Jesus had in mind. He told this very odd story, at least to us it's a very odd story. But then I want us to circle back around to how I began this lesson a few moments ago. I don't want to lose you this morning because I want to come back at the end to make some modern-day applications from a parable that you may think has no modern-day application. But I want us to really think about this text because I think if we really dig deeply and really make some application from it, 
it may, for you, like it has for me, become one of the more meaningful parables that Jesus ever told. First of all this morning, think with me, though, about the setting itself of the parable. We've said this a whole lot this year, especially on Sunday mornings as we've, as we've been talking about the words of Jesus, that it's very easy just to lift a phrase or even lift a whole parable and just make it mean whatever we want to mean and never really consider the context, never really consider the, the setting. But I want us to make sure this morning we see why Jesus told this very odd-to-us story. It comes on the heels of a little longer section of Scripture that begins back up in verse 14 in reality. And you see back in Luke 11 and verse 14 that Jesus performs this miracle of casting out a demon, exercising a demon. And any time it seems that Jesus performed a miracle, there were at least a couple of different reactions. And you can naturally imagine what they were. Some were amazed and were drawn to Him. Some even believed in Him because of the miracles or, or at least began to believe in Him. And some went to the exact opposite extreme and didn't like him. They were more jealous, more angry, more frustrated. They hated him even more because of the miracles that he performed at various times throughout his ministry. And it seems that it's that second reaction that's on full display here. If you notice in verse 11, some were charging Jesus by saying, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, that is the prince of the demons. That's a horrible accusation. It's hard to imagine much, anything much worse that anybody could accuse Jesus of than that. But with that accusation made against Christ, Jesus launches into this, this discourse, if you will, about spiritual matters that begins with one of his more famous statements when he said, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household or a divided house falls. And then Jesus explained that it wouldn't make any sense for Satan or for one who worked for Satan to cast out demons. That just doesn't make even logical sense, much, any, much, much less any sort of spiritual sense. In fact, then, Jesus says in verse 19, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by the prince of the, the demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? That's a pretty loaded question, isn't it? How are you supposed to answer that one? By the way, it reminds us that every time Jesus asked a question, it proved a point. He wasn't asking for information. He was asking questions to prove a point. Now, scholars are divided, by the way, about whether or not some other people could cast out demons at this time. But whatever, wherever you fall on that, Jesus asked a very loaded, meaningful question of them. If you're saying that the only way to do this is by the power of Satan, then how can some of you either do it or claim to do it? whichever would happen to be the case. But then Jesus turns to a very important discussion. Even for today, notice what he says in verse 20. But if by the finger or the power of God, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We have a lot of people, this is sort of a lesson within the lesson, by the way. We have a lot of people in the religious world today who suggest to us that the kingdom has not come. That Jesus came to this earth in order to bring a kingdom, but basically, if I may paraphrase it, basically he failed. The Jews spoiled the plan, and he ended up on the cross. And so as sort of a replacement plan, some call it a stopgap measure, God put in place the church. And so we're now living in the church age, and the kingdom, often called the millennial kingdom, is yet to come. Folks, if that's the case, Luke 11 and verse 20 had no meaning whatsoever. Did Jesus drive out demons when He was here on the earth? Yes, there's no question about it. 
Did Jesus drive out demons by, as he were to hear, the finger of God? We might call it the power of God. Absolutely. If that is true, then folks, we are in the kingdom now. Because Jesus said, if I do this, if I cast out these demons by the finger or by the power of God, then the kingdom is come. We are not in the church age only. The kingdom is here. And the very simple fact that Jesus cast out demons proves it. He made that connection himself. And so Jesus makes a very powerful point for us even today as we think about his his reigning over a kingdom. But after making it clear that he is stronger than Satan, stronger than demons, Jesus then makes a statement. I want you to notice it serves as a bridge because it summarizes what he's been saying about, about casting out demons and so on and so forth and then serves to a bridge to the parable we're studying. Verse 23 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters, and some translations add the word abroad, scatters abroad. I really like what H. Leo Bowles wrote about that verse. Listen to these very few sentences. He said, This is a proverbial saying that was probably repeated often by Jesus. It was suited to the various classes of his hearers, many of whom were secret enemies, or undecided and wavering, or timid friends. Jesus emphatically declares that there can be no middle ground. He that does not take part with God and Christ must take part with Satan. Now that may sound like a very strong phrase, but exactly what Jesus was saying. What you're beginning to see in this context in Luke chapter 11 are some of those who are truly on the inward side against Jesus are beginning to show their true colors. They're not all that worried anymore about having any sort of pretense. Outwardly, they've got a whole lot of things together. They've got the right look, they've got all the right forms, all the right functions. But inwardly, they're harboring hatred, jealousy, Envy, a lack of justice, a lack of grace, a lack of mercy. And Jesus is basically telling them in so many words, you can't have it both ways. There is no middle ground. You are either with me or you are against me. You either gather in or you're scattering. There's no middle ground. How we need to hear that, even in the religious world today. How often do we kind of want to have it both ways? I kind of want to have my Christianity and my worldly life too. I want to have my Sunday religion and my Monday through Saturday me. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. And so by way of context, by way of setting, Jesus is making it clear that there were some who were hypocritical, Pharisees and others, who on the outward had it all together. But inwardly, they were against him. And he's telling them, you cannot have it all. That's the setting. With that as the background then, let's walk through the parable itself, the points of the parable. Now keep in mind that this parable is spoken on the heels of Jesus driving out a demon. It's not that he was doing this all over the place all the time, but this is an odd parable. Because usually when we think of parables, we think of something that even we can sort of relate to today. You know, you may not be someone who gardens or has flowers or those sorts of things, but even today we understand things like sowing seed. Even if you don't do it, we understand that concept, right? Things like the pearl of great price. I may not ever have a pearl of great price, sorry, Leah. We may never have anything like that, but I can at least connect with it. This parable I cannot connect with. There's, there's no way for us to really understand 
casting out demons. But to those who were there and saw Jesus had just performed this miracle, Jesus then takes that event that had just happened and turns it into a parable. Remember the definition of a parable. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The word parable literally just means to place alongside of. You take something earthly, something known in this world, and you lay or place alongside of it something spiritual, something heavenly. So Jesus takes this earthly event that had just happened and lays alongside of it a powerful parable. Jesus simply told them that this demon was not annihilated. It was simply exercised, gone, driven out. It didn't cease to exist. Instead, it seems this demon had more it wanted to do. It wanted to destroy somebody else since the demon is one who works for our ultimate enemy, Satan. And so notice that Jesus says this demon goes out and seeks. Some translations have dry places. Some have waterless places. But it seeks rest in those places. It seems that that's meant simply to represent that this demon was looking for somewhere to continue its work but couldn't find anywhere. But there's something awful in all of that. There's one writer who suggested that what's awful about all this is that the demon won't rest until it finds someone or something to disrupt. That's what's going on. And by the way, doesn't that make you more grateful to live outside of the New Testament, the clothes of the New Testament, where these things don't happen anymore? So, so as the demon goes to find and cannot find what it's looking for, it makes an interesting decision, does it not? I'll go back to where I came from. I'll go back to the house that I left. Maybe I can find residence there again. But if this demon returns, and when it does, verse 25 is the key, it finds the house swept and put in order. Now, of course, that's where we get the title for our lesson this morning, Clean Your House. It finds the house swept and put in order. The demon has been driven out. The bad has been removed. But there's something missing that's not said, but it's implied that we'll get to in just a moment. The house is all clean, it's all inviting, so much so that the demon begins to invite others. Seven others, and the text even says they're worse than he is. And now the person has eight within. And Jesus ends with a statement, the last state of that person is worse than the first. He had one, now he has eight demons. Now that's a confusing parable in a lot of ways, I get it. But this is one of the times that we need to see something that's not said, or at least simply that's just implied, but that really makes the point of the parable. The house, of course, is meant to represent the person's soul, or just the person himself. It's been swept clean. All the bad has been removed by way of this demon being removed. So everything looks in order. But what has the person not done? Oh, that person has swept the house. They've cleaned the house. Maybe they've put the couch over here now instead of the couch over there now. But what have they not done? They've not filled the house with good things. All they've done is made the house inviting for whoever, if you please, would knock on the door and come in. And in the case of this parable, it happens to be that demon again who all of a sudden becomes a party coordinator and invites seven more. Remember the context. These religious leaders were frustrated with Jesus. They were frustrated with what was going on. On the outside, they looked religious. They had the forms and the functions down pat, but they didn't have any heart in the matter whatsoever. This parable, at least in part, 
was meant to be a warning that if they didn't fill their heart and their mind and their soul with the right things and with the right attitudes, things like humility, reverence, respect, justice, it would only get worse for them over time. Now think about that from a couple of angles, at least by those who, who would have heard Jesus initially. There are a couple of different ideas as to, as to what Jesus may have specifically had in mind. Some suggest that Jesus had almost a, a generational type thing. If you ever survey the Old Testament, my Sunday morning Bible class, we've been surveying the Bible, what it feels like forever. We're going to start Ezekiel next week. We've been doing it for like two years. We're almost to Ezekiel. But, but anyway, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the fall of the southern kingdom especially. This morning we studied the book of Lamentations specifically. And I mentioned to them, I was going to mention this in the sermon as well, that from the time Jerusalem fell, all the way literally until now, those who are Orthodox Jews have never had a problem again with idolatry. But in that time between when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians, the people are eventually brought back to Jerusalem, up to the time of Christ, a period of about 500 or so years, idolatry and things was just not a problem anymore. But what began to replace it was this rigid, heartless religion in so many lives. But religion became a hierarchy. And so you have Pharisees and Sadducees and so on and so forth who have their little group and their little group and we're better than you and we're better than you and you better follow our way. Jesus may have been talking simply generationally about how over the course of these centuries, you've gotten certain things right. You're avoiding the don'ts, don't bow down to idols, don't make graven images, but you're forgetting some of the do's, some of the inward heart matters. It could also simply be individual. That Jesus was saying that those who were listening to him that day, some had heard John the Baptist preach. Now they're hearing Jesus preach. And both had called out some of these religious errors. And some had listened. Not all did, but some had listened. But now, as some of the teaching is getting more personal, more direct, they're really not liking this very much. And they're beginning to back off and turn away. And Jesus is beginning to say that there are some among you who are showing their true colors. Outwardly, they look like they've got it all together, but I know inwardly there's no heart, there's no spirit. And it's only going to get worse. And folks, we don't need any more proof that it would get worse than simply some of these same people would be the ones crying out, crucify Him in a matter of months. It's an interesting parable if you stop and think about it. That Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and showing outward forms are important. But the heart of the matter has to be there as well. It's also interesting that Luke goes on to tell us the response to the parable. And it's interesting that Luke does not tell us one of those times, this is not most parables where you have the reaction of the crowd. Now how often do you have a teaching of Jesus, for example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're told basically the masses were saying, wow, nobody ever talked like this. That he teaches like one with authority, not as one of our scribes. That's not the case here. You don't have the, a poll taken and say how many liked it and how many didn't. You don't have that a lot of people are wanting to kill him or that a lot of people want to make him king. Instead, Luke records the reaction of one person. And it's a woman in the crowd who, the text literally says, she lifted her voice, she cried out, and praises not Jesus, she praises the mother of Jesus. Kind of odd. This whole text is odd in a lot of ways. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, I'm sorry. When I read that, I think, 
What? <laughs> That's the strangest reaction that it could ever be. And I, and I don't know, and I read, I don't know how many commentaries look at this, and nobody really knows why this woman reacted the way she did, except possibly this. The best, the best explanation I could come up with was simply that possibly she's saying, as possibly a mother herself, that she's looking at this person who just performed this miracle a few moments before, who now is standing up and is teaching very boldly, very confidently, very truthfully, and she's basically saying, maybe as a mother herself, he had to have a good mom. Now, I don't know what, what the case is, but, but she praises Christ through praising his family, his ancestry, his mother, something. But the key to it is not her response. The key to it is Christ's response to her because Jesus is always on mission. And so not rebuking her, I don't think, not in a mean way, he turns it around and says, there's a greater blessing on those who hear the word and do it. Keep the context in mind. He had just been pointing out those who outwardly looked like they had it all together. Are there some forms and functions in the law of Moses? You better believe it. There's a whole bunch of them. Some of them seem almost you know, bizarre to us. By, by, you know, when you bring sacrifices, you cut an animal this way or you do it this way. And it's, there's all these forms and functions and ceremonies. But folks, that's not all that was in the law of Moses, is there? There's all kinds of justice, mercy, love, heart, spirit. Jesus is trying to point out it's not about things like ancestry. It's not about things like parentage, if she's praising his mother. It's not about primarily being a great orator. It's not about rising up the religious ranks like the Pharisees and others would have wanted to. It's about knowing the wholeness, the fullness of the Word of God and keeping it, doing it. Now, some of you are going, I know you said about 20 minutes ago, you've been studying this sermon for five years. I don't see five years worth of work in this yet because <laughs> I don't even know why we're studying this. We don't have demon possession today. We don't have to exercise demons. This parable has absolutely nothing to do with us all these years later. Oh, I think it does. I think it very much, not because of the demons, because the principles I will share with you three. Three modern-day applications we can make. One really from the context of the parable, and then two from the parable itself. And they're applications that I think all of us, literally all of us, need to make certain we take to heart. Application number one is this. True religion is not just about avoiding don'ts. The Pharisees... Other religious leaders of Jesus' time, folks, they had avoiding the don'ts down. They had that absolutely down to a T. Now, were there some don'ts in the Old Testament law? Absolutely. The Ten Commandments contain a bunch of them. Are there some don'ts in New Testament Christianity that we are to follow? Absolutely. It's not that we avoid the don'ts. We must stay away from certain, in our personal lives, we must stay away from certain things because God has commanded that there are don'ts. There are things we simply do not do because God has commanded them. I, I don't commit adultery. I don't lie. I don't dress immodestly. I don't hurt my body by things like alcohol. Why? Because God has made it clear. But folks, true religion is not found in only avoiding the don'ts. It's also true in our worship. We don't sing with an instrument because the New Testament makes it clear 
that we are to sing. But we can get really, really proud of the fact that we don't have a piano or a band or whatever up here. And when Eric leads us in a beautiful song like we just sang, Anywhere is Home, just stand there. But I don't have an instrument. Folks, true religion is about more than avoiding the don'ts. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, sorry. We have to avoid the don'ts. But Christianity is about far more than that. Application number two. A person's soul is not a vacuum. That house in the parable meant to represent the person or the soul. It was swept clean, was it not? Put in order. But Jesus makes it clear by that odd part of the parable where this demon comes back with other demons and all that stuff. He's making it clear we are going to be filled with something. Think about, by the way, one of the contexts that deals with uh, our singing in worship. You know, we're told that we're to sing and, you know, with understanding in our hearts. But Paul, in the verse directly before that, Galatians chapter 5, Do not be drunk in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Interesting. By the way, one of the ways in which we are filled with the Spirit is singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. The command in that context literally is to be filled with the Spirit. And one of the ways that manifests itself is in singing. Paul, in that context, is making it clear that even worship doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not just avoiding the don'ts. It's that I'm so filled with the Spirit, I can't help but sing and make melody in my heart. Remember how we began our lesson? You ever struggle with falling back into temptation? Sometimes it's because we rid ourselves of something and think we've accomplished everything. Our soul was not a vacuum. And so we must be very careful what we fill our mind, our heart, our soul with. And so tied to that, the third and overall application really is this. The best way to avoid evil is to do good. We can name anything. But if we name any sin whatsoever... We could talk about someone overcoming that sin or with the grace of God and their their own effort overcoming that sin. But if that person does not then replace that bad attitude, that sinful attitude, that sinful activity, whatever it is, if that person does not replace that with good things, they're either going to fall back into the sin or another sin. And it's probably going to be worse because now they're going to have the guilt and the despair of thinking they had everything figured out, and they don't. Now, let me be careful in saying this. I'm not saying that we overcome temptation all of our own doing. That's not what I'm saying. We have to have the grace of God, the help of God, God's mercy when we, when we take steps backward, and the help of other people. But folks, we cannot just overcome some temptation and then sit back and act like you've accomplished everything. We must be filling our minds with good things. We must be spending our time doing good things. That's why the psalmist would say things like, Your word have I treasured up in my heart that I might not sin against you. That doesn't happen by accident. 
It takes time and effort to hide or to treasure up the Word of God in our heart. And so we study the Bible to draw closer to God. That's our ultimate purpose. But we also study the Bible to fill our mind, to be prepared for temptation. We serve others to glorify God. But we also serve others because I want to fill my time with thinking of others, not thinking of myself. Somebody struggles to overcome some temptation, some struggle, maybe even addiction. If they don't fill their time and their effort with what's good, they're going to fall. It may not be into the same temptation, but they're going to fall. Did you notice that Jesus did not say, He who is not against me or is not with me is neutral? Did you notice he didn't say that? But can't we kind of read it that way? Well, I'm not against Jesus. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I'm not totally against him. Jesus makes it clear there's not a neutral side to this. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either gathering or you're scattering. There's no middle side. And so we have to spend our time, yes, sweeping out the bag, cleaning our house, to use our sermon title. But then we also take the time to fill that space by inviting the most honored guest in, and that's Christ. And filling our time with His service, His mercy, His justice. I've avoided as best I can naming certain sins or certain temptations. It would be far easier to illustrate this lesson by saying, if you struggle with this, if you struggle with that, that would be a whole lot easier. But the reason I've avoided that is what I said at the beginning. If I named one or two or three things, it'd be easier to figure, well, that's a real struggle. What I deal with is not a real struggle. Folks, sin is a struggle. Temptation is real for all of us. And some of us have been Christians a long, long time, may not be tempted as strong as we used to be or in the same ways as we used to be, but temptation is always real and is always present. That enemy that we have, that we resist and he'll flee from us, he's going to come back at times because he's like that lion that prowls around seeking someone who devour. That's the way he operates. And I don't know, in every life in this room, what that besetting sin or that sin that clings so closely is for you. I know what some of them are for me. Things that I struggle with, things that tempt me, and things I have to work very hard. But I don't want to name individual things. Because I want you to take a moment. And I just want you to think. I want you to think, what sin is it? What temptation is it that you fight? Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's an action. Maybe it's misuse of speech. But you fight. And I want you to think, if I did everything by the grace of God I could to sweep that away from me, that'd be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? But then am I willing to understand that the real blessing comes when I take all of God's Word and actually keep it. To fill that space with what is good. 
Not that I'll never be tempted again, but that now I'm ready. Because I know temptation is real. I know my enemy, Satan, is real. And I don't want him to put a toe in the front door. I want Christ as the honored guest of my heart. And God as the honored one of my life. May I ask a very personal question or a couple of them as we close? Are you ready to work hard by the grace of God and with His help to sweep out the bad? Oh, God has made it clear that if you'll come to Him and become a Christian, the waters of baptism wash away those sins. And you're clean. You have a new start. If you've never done that, this is the morning to do that. To get that fresh start by becoming a Christian. Following that plan of salvation. Hearing the Word of God. Believing what it says. Turning from sin. Confessing Christ as Lord. And being immersed, buried in water for the forgiveness, the remission, the liberation from your sins. If you've never done that, that's where it starts. But that's where it starts. Brother or sister in Christ, we're still tempted. Are you ready to do the hard work of allowing God to sweep away those sins? But maybe a harder question. Are you ready to do the even harder work of filling your life with what's good? Of not just saying, well, I've overcome that. I'm good. But realizing my sin is not, my soul, excuse me, is not a vacuum. And I'm going to fill my heart And fill my life with doing what is good. We'd love to pray with you. To encourage you. To ask for forgiveness as such as necessary. But it's time to clean the house. And it's time to let God have an honored place in our heart. And if that's your desire, we invite you to come. Or we stand and sing to encourage you.